The Athletic. I'm Ian McIntosh and welcome to the Football Manager Show, sponsored by LiveScore. On today's show, we're talking team cohesion. What is it? Why is it so important? Russell Hammond is here from Sports Interactive to provide significant improvement to your vision and positioning. We're looking back at last weekend's 92-93 FM draft competition with a brilliant Tony Jameson. And we've got the best FM confessional so far. So let's get going. Okay, so we had a letter last week from Mike Baker that, uh, that, that pretty much led to uh, led to this episode. He said... I was listening to Jacob McMaster's letter discussing his Kaiserslautern save and the trouble he had when it came to cracking the biggest teams. Jacob was doing really, really well, but he just couldn't get the results against the likes of Bayern, which is not unusual. Mike says he's in season three of a Newcastle save, having finished third and then second, now pushing for the title. And he believes that the final push to the top is, is all about team dynamics. So he didn't have great team cohesion. He slowed down the churn of players coming and going. He's got a core of a squad that he thinks will be in place for some time. As far as he's concerned, getting the dynamics right is as an important part of football manager as tactics. Uh, this is something we've touched on um, in the past. He says his Newcastle side have worked to develop an, an almost supernatural telepathic understanding of each other on the pitch. And that's what's made the difference. Now, I can absolutely concur with this. I had a similar thing towards the end of my first season with Newcastle where I just hit a settled tactic, hit a settled core. It helps not playing European football. The cohesion went through the roof and suddenly when we're on a transition in particular, we're just making the pass almost without looking, just knowing where the runner's going to be and it, it just makes a huge difference. However, that's not a big enough sample size. So welcome to the show from Sports Interactive, Russell Hammond. Good morning, Ian. Russell, for the benefit of those who don't know you, what exactly do you do all day? So I'm a QA lead analyst for a gameplay area. So essentially I look through sections of the game that are parts that I check for bugs, make sure that there's uh, the designs for any of the new features going in are as expected, that they're all working well, and then essentially play football manager all day. Excellent. Well, what a lovely job and makes it perfect for, for this. Now, let's just start right at the very beginning. What actually is team cohesion? I, I'm fairly sure there are some people who don't even look at this stat. So team cohesion is one of the three sort of main dynamic sections. In dynamics, you've got team cohesion, club atmosphere, managerial support, which all are kind of linked into each other. But team cohesion is the one that's about the players on the pitch. So how well they understand tactics, how well they understand where their teammates are going to be, how quickly they know, as you said in your intro, like where to play the passes, where they expect the players to, to be. You can tell the teams in real life that have got the better team cohesion just from playing passes without knowing where their teammates are going to be and their teammates are there. Essentially, the team cohesion is the understanding of the players on the pitch. We never want to pop the hood on this game and sort of say, do this and that happens. But it's probably worth saying that essentially when team cohesion is a high, all the players get a boost to their vision and positioning. 
to a point, they not the actual attributes within the game themselves, but there are factors that take place within the, the matches that will be increased by having a higher team cohesion, yeah. Does this connect up with, with those lovely little green lines you get when you're playing well? Do you mean the player partnership lines on the tactics pitch? That's the one. They have a minor impact on those, but those are normally just down to the two relationships between the players and how well they've been playing. Essentially, the player partnership lines are when players have a, a good individual understanding with each other when they're like friends and have sort of, they've been playing well together. You can have low team cohesion, but still have those player partnership lines there in some examples if the players get on well with each other. Okay. All right. That's fascinating. Um, when team cohesion's low, I guess it's just the opposite, right? Yeah. Yeah. When team cohesion's low, generally the players, they're not as aware of where their teammates are. Um, they're not as likely to play, you know, passes as quickly. They'll take some time to look and, and see where their teammates are. They're sort of slower to react as well, moving during transitions. It's not a huge amount of impact, but it does have an impact like every little section of the game has. And and this is really important because the number of people, and I, I count myself in this number, who might sort of, I don't know, start unemployed, pick up a job at a team that's been playing very badly and go into it and play three or four games and lose them all. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not necessarily, note the way I'm phrasing this, it's not necessarily because you're a bad manager. It could be just that you've picked up a team with really low team cohesion and this is just the storm you're going to have to sail through, right? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's like with any situation. Normally, when you're taking on a job, the previous manager has been moved on because the team aren't doing as well as they could be. So you'll generally come in, find your morale a bit low, the player's not particularly in a good place, all the dynamics will be sort of low, so the team cohesion club atmosphere will be low, managerial support will be neutral because you're sort of new in through the door. So, yeah, it'll be one of those things where that will all have an impact on the game. It might not be necessarily your tactics that are causing the problems. Exactly. Just look at Eddie Howe and uh, how mysteriously everyone was going, yeah, Newcastle are getting relegated way back in December. (laughs) People never learn. It always amazes me. People never learn. They always make judgments on what's going to happen halfway through the season. Anyway, don't get me started. Team cohesion, what can we do to make it better? Because not a lot of people actually go in and manually change modules on training, but I believe that you can make a big impact by doing that. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of factors that influence it massively. Two of them, generally speaking, kind of out of your control in the scenario you gave where you join a team halfway through the season. But time at club and uh, training camps have an impact on the team cohesion under the hood. One of the main things, though, as you said, there is training. Training sessions actually have quite a lot of impact on team cohesion. So depends on the training sessions that you choose. But match preparation, for example, team cohesion, you'll either on all of them get increased or greatly increased. And the benefits of uh, match preparation training is that it has less chance of impact uh, injuries and less chance of uh, condition and fatigue going up. But you increase your team cohesion and the tactical familiarities between the players. So ones like teamwork, for example, that has a greatly increased team cohesion under the match preparation, uh, as does match practice as well. So both of those are pretty easy ways to get that team cohesion bar on the rise just through having those training sessions in there. Two of my favourites aren't generally put there automatically as well. One is team bonding, mm-hmm. um, which if I might suggest a feature, I would like to dig deeper on that in future versions of a Football Manager. And I'd like to be able to choose whether I'm sending them for a golf day or go-karting or, you know, maybe we're just getting sitting around and talking about our feelings. I, I'd like more specificity. That's a, that's a word. Um, 
down there. But team bonding can make a big, big difference, can't it? Yeah, yeah. Team bonding is the one that carries the um, increased team cohesion. So it's one of the higher ones that will have an impact. And yeah, I mean, generally speaking, is as you'd like to think with any team bonding, it helps all the happiness, team, you know, morales, the team cohesions. It has an impact as well on boosting teamwork for the next game as well, because your players are all getting on well with each other. Um, so yeah, that is one of the ones that's really good if you're looking at getting your players. As you said in your example, if you've come into a new club, take it over, morales on the floor, you know, bottom end of the table, struggling, that's a good way to get sort of those numbers turning around in the right direction. Another one I found that never comes up automatically is the match review program, which you find in the same place as match preparation, which I presume is like all of the players sitting around and the DVDs on and they talk about where they went wrong. Yep, exactly that. So yeah, that's you could only have that available straight up the day after a match and you normally have to give up either a recovery or a rest slot. So that's why that one's not in there by default because on a balance of scale, less impact on injuries if you have recovery and rest sessions after a match but the match review can be really useful like you said again if you're coming into a new team and you want to sort of try and analyze where where things have gone wrong in your first couple of games match review is great for that and as you said it gives you lots of boosts in terms of tactical familiarity the team cohesion as well do you get any effect when you actively try to make players happier like by praising their their performances or literally putting an arm around them yeah, I mean, all of those individuals, they can have an impact on a player's body language and on their morale. So if you boost up a player's morale, that will have an effect because the player will be happier and you'll be like, oh, I kind of like this manager. Oh, he's a nice guy. Um, so yeah, again, all of those will have a small amount of an impact on an individual player. They certainly help on the team group as a whole. You'd sort of have to try and get everyone on board in that respect. But again, it, it, it can only benefit because you're making the players happier and building the understanding between you and them. Churn of transfers and tactics, does that have a deleterious effect? Absolutely, yes. A high squad turnover on Team Cohesion can be devastating because the more players that you bring in, the more it's going to drop their understanding, different players, different positions. Likewise, like you said there with tactics, if you've got the, if you're training three separate tactics on the tactics page and you've got a full tactical sort of familiarity or pretty close to full, that won't be as much of an impact. But if you play four at the back, on all three tactics, and then you suddenly change to five at the back randomly out of the blue, that'll have an impact because the players won't be aware of these tactical changes, where they're meant to be, the positioning, that kind of thing. So, yeah, both of those, especially a high turnover of players, can really have an impact on, on team cohesion because new players that they all have to get to understand each other. And the benefits here can be really tangible, can't they? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like I said, it just makes life easier in terms of players knowing where they are on the pitch, the passes that they can make, the, the ability to read the situations. You look at some of the top teams now and the way that they can just ping the ball around because they, the core of that squad has been together for four or five years. You know, they know where each other is. And that's something that we do try and replicate in, in Football Manager. One of my favourite stats since we've been doing this show was the discovery that only 1.6% of players had a tactical plan for every single set piece. <laughs> yep. I absolutely love that. What's the stats like on, on training and people really digging deep on it? I know before we went in, I haven't looked at them because it's not my area anymore, but when we looked at them before the review, it was about 15% of users would go in and use training and, and 5%, 5 to 10% would go back and go in again after the changes have been made. Wow. So yeah, again, it's one of those things. And 
I do understand it myself because before I joined SI, I thought training was one of those complicated things that you just look at and it was just so overwhelming because it's just a sheet of words and, and different sessions. But like everything, once you get the hang of it and you tune on it, it can give you that extra 5-10% that you need to, to boost yourself up above the AI. That's amazing. 85% of football manager players are just leaving training alone and never look at it. And I'm the sad sack who's going through going, oh, I think we'll do defensive shadow play followed by attacking free kicks and then a little bit of endurance. I mean, I, I do it all the time. I, I love tinkering with training, but then I help with it when we did the massive revamp. So I sort of love playing around and setting all of my training. I've got like seven or eight saved training schedules that I import to every club that I go to. Um, so you, you're not alone in that respect. <laughs> <laughs> Russell Hammond, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me again. It's more than a score with Live Score. Legends of the game. So, what's all this about then? Well, with LiveScore, which I'm certain you've all downloaded for free from the App Store or Google Play, you get the latest action stats and analysis from around the world. Because we know with football, it goes beyond scores. It's the stories from the pitch and the stands, players and fans all spinning their own strands of the mighty football web that links us all together. And there's no better way to twang that web than by playing Football Manager. Because we've been doing it for so many years, we've made a few memories. Welcome then to Legends of the Game. Now, the best things in life are free, sang Janet and Luther, and I believe that song was about Terebo West. The first thing anyone did when they started a game of CMO 102 was sign Terebo West. There he was, of all that determination and bravery and strength, and the only thing he didn't have was a contract. But you could soon change that. He was wonderful. He was left-footed and he would always make a difference. If you signed him for Manchester UFC, he was the sort of capable understudy that you could switch in, switch out during those busy Champions League weeks. So remember, two group stages back then, remember that? If you signed him for a medium-sized club like Newcastle or Sunderland, you'd have to eventually get an understudy for him, because it wouldn't be too long before you were involved in those busy Champions League weeks. In real life, Terebo West started his career under the tutelage of the legendary French manager Guy Roux at Auxerre, where in 1996 he was part of their only title-winning team ever. That earned him a move to Inter, where he would later fall out of favour, play briefly for AC Milan, wind up at Derby County on loan, and that was pretty much that. I mean, sure, he spent short periods at Kaiserslautern, Partizan, Al-Arabi, and even Plymouth Argyle before eventually calling it a day. But his peak was at Auxerre. And now, as you've probably seen, he's a man of God, a fiery-looking pastor in Lagos, Nigeria. And he looks awesome, too, all righteous and gesticular. Ah, Taribo West, you truly are a legend of the game, and arguably the best free transfer of all time. That was It's More Than A Score of Live Score Legends of the Game. You can get real-time updates and results, match highlights and breaking news from around the football world on the Live Score app. And it's completely free. Just search for it on the App Store or Google Play now. Do you know who broke the Erling Haaland story? David Ornstein. 
Do you know who broke the Eric Ten Hag story? David Ornstein. Do you know who seems to break every bleeding story these days? David Ornstein. And where does he live? He lives here, in the brutalist concrete edifice on the Strand that serves as a home to The Athletic. And you can read him and all of the other athletic writers for, well, barely anything. If you've never subscribed before, head to theathletic.com forward slash fmpod and you can get six months for six quid. Yeah, six months for six quid. Madness. Go to theathletic.com forward slash fmpod and take full advantage today. Welcome back to the show, Tony Jameson. Hi. Hello. This is not the first time you've been in my ears over the past seven days. We've uh, sort of cyber seen a lot of each other. We have. We've, sh- we've, no- we've, we've shared a touchline. <laughs> we really did. I, it was nice as well. The handshakes before and, and good luck for the rest of the season afterwards. It was classy. I think real managers could uh, could learn a lot from the way we conducted ourselves. I mean, to be honest, it's nothing that uh, it's nothing less than everyone expected, right? I mean, you know, it was the uh, El Creator call. Is that how what we're going to dub it as? <laughs> I thought you were going to say elder statesman, which might actually just be more accurate. For anyone who hasn't got a clue what we're talking about, Tony and I were in the uh, the, the, the FM draft for the 1992-93 database over the weekend. Um, Tony, you've done a few of these. Can you remind people you know, what it is and how it works? Yeah, so basically on FM now there's a draft mode, which is similar to what you get if you play fantasy football, so or like sort of ultimate team or something, where I guess the basis really is that you're given a, a, a pot of money and players in the database are obviously available for, for transfer, you create your squad, you assemble that, and you can play either locally against like sort of people that you know, or you can play remotely and play it across across the world. And what we've got now in the FM community is quite a few tournaments kicking up. Obviously, you've got Showdown, you've got the playoffs, Super League. You know, these are like sort of big competitions where contestants from all across the world are now competing. And we got you involved, which was fantastic because the ninety two ninety three database, which obviously you've spoken to mad scientists about previously, is absolutely mine and your era and it couldn't be anybody else but yourself and myself involved right it was incredible it was um just like outside of everything else it's just a very happy meander down memory lane which we did on on the thursday before the tournament everyone sort of got together for the draft through a a discord audio channel and it was weird it was like being led into a pub blindfold and then sat down at a table full of really nice people it was lovely. Like the first, the first time I've ever looked at this database, I spent three hours just going, "Oh my God, there's Gary Penrice," and that was, <laughs> and Gary Penrice will be will be someone we'll talk about a little bit later on as well. Um, but yeah, but Thursday's draft was, as you say, it was just nice. It was properly retrospective. It was familiarity. It was just so much rose tinted glasses. I think, with this database, which oh. is both a blessing and potentially a curse. And never more so than, than when it came to me, because I spent three hours um, in the office going through the database and picking like 10 players for each position, so I'd never have to panic. And my first choice was Thomas Hassler, who is basically the James Ward-Prowse of this database. He's you know 20 for corners, 20 for free kicks, 20s all over the shop. Thomas Hassler was going to be my James Ward-Prowse. And I was fourth pick. I could not believe that no one had chosen Diego Maradona. It's Diego Maradona. <laughs> so I dropped everything, got Maradona, missed out on Hassler and 
Maradona was crap. This is the problem with draft mode, isn't it? Yeah. Did you did you go in with a set plan and then actually stick to it? So I had a, so I was last pick. So I was pick twelve, which meant that I was also pick thirteen. Now. I wanted, and I said quite openly in a few streams previously, that I wanted Paolo Maldini as my number one pick. And I thought, there's no way Maldini's still going to be on the board at pick 12. And he was. And I was like, right, we're getting Maldini. And then my second pick was Rude Hullet. And I was going, oh, this is fantastic. And then by the time the next set came around, I was like, okay, I've got my next ideas. And I've got my next ideas. And then after that, I went a little off script. <laughs> <laughs> and just went, oh, there's no fullbacks anymore. <laughs> like, and I ended up with Mel Sterland from Leeds. Um, yeah, and then there was a moment with, as I say, with with Gary Penrice, who I picked before Alan Shearer. You know, just the usual things that you get, you get sort of slightly taken in by and going, oh, Colton Palmer as a libero on attack. That's a brilliant idea. Let's make that happen. I tell you what, there, there was the greatest chasm you've ever seen between my confidence on the day of the tournament and my confidence after five minutes of the tournament. Uh, no two numbers have ever been more different. Because on the morning, I was going all Sun Tzu. I was, I was on Twitter tweeting whiteboard tactical plans, showing myself playing a 4-4-2 with Yam Mulby and Ray Wilkins in the middle because I thought my first opponent is going to look at that and they're going to go, oh my God, he's got the slowest midfield ever I'm just going to play two slow midfielders and, and put all my players elsewhere. I really thought I was being crafty. And when the competition starts, there's four experts, including RDF Tactics, who were there sort of dissecting the teams. And they've gone for it. They're like, oh, you can tell it's his first tournament. He doesn't know what he's doing. So I'm sitting there giggling away. And then I come up against my first opponent and he's playing a deep line playmaker in the sort of DMC role and three central midfielders. So the fact that I'm playing a, a 4-3-3, I haven't hoodwinked anyone and he tears me to pieces. It's 4-0 before half time. This is another level of tactical awareness, isn't it? Oh, it's brutal. There's And there's no other way to replicate it as well. Like, so just for a bit of context, Ian, this was your first ever draft. Yeah, and your first ever performance in PvP. This is my third appearance in the FM playoffs, and this is the first time I registered a win. That's like, <laughs> I've had three seasons where I've ended up with like two draws and one win. Like I've won other tournaments, but my word, it's a baptism of fire. You come into it and you you instantly, if you go behind, and you were in the situation that I was when I first started, being hammered in the first half and being like 4-0 down and going, now what do I do? Like, because whatever, because your your natural instincts are to change everything, and you know that's wrong. <laughs> but because you're streaming it as well, you're going. I have to be seen to be doing something, and you just click wildly and panic. And yeah, that's when bad things happen. It's extraordinary because the formations you're coming up against are not formations you would ever see the AI use. So everything that you think you know about Football Manager goes in the bin straight away, and it felt like having very conventional conservative formations that would serve you well over a 50 or 60 game season was kind of the the equivalent of going into a real football match nude with carpet slippers. Yeah, exactly. And to be fair, that was one of my tactics that I was going to use. <laughs> and um, It was, uh, yeah, you've, you've got to, to literally sort of forget everything, you know, as you say, like there's certain areas of the pitch where you would look at stuff like asymmetric tactics work really nicely in, in PvP where the sort of various sections of the pitch are covered in a way that they wouldn't be against the AI. 
and that seems to work quite nicely. But like leading up to it, I was all convinced. I was like four four two, four four two. I'm gonna play a four four two, and then I got on the day and I was like, I'm playing a three five two. That's what I'm doing. Like I don't <laughs> trust the four four two enough. And then my plans went out the window when Paolo Maldini got sent off after twelve minutes. So that was me completely out. I was like, well, I don't know what to do now. This is this is not plan A. Plan A is gone. Like what's plan B? Yeah, and then and then we 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 got to the th- our third game of the of the group stage, and between us we had amassed a total of one point. Yeah, you um, had amassed a total of one point. I had amassed a total I've of been no diplomatic. points. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it was basically it was it was Norwich Watford, wasn't it? And uh, I think I was happy enough with how it went. Leading into it, we dubbed it as the People's Final. We were like, this is the one that people want to see. Obviously, like, you know, you've you've written you know multiple books, and obviously you've got the, the podcast. I've got the stand-up show. I've got another podcast, and it was kind of this is the one. Like everyone wants to see this this battle for the ages, and and we saw it in match day three, which was a really important time as well because you'd obviously had a point I had no point so I had to get something out of that match to stay in the competition you just had to not get beat and I think we put on an absolutely thrilling one-all draw it was proper end-to-end I still think if Diego Maradona's finishing had been switched on we might have done better but thankfully we didn't need him because we had Ian Dowie Dowie was the man wasn't he Dowie on as a target man was lethal yeah, top goal scorer, heading of 20, vision of 20. Everyone was taking a mick, but I think he ended up with three or four goals in the tournament. Diego Maradona ended up with none. So there was something to learn there. And then I've never had an experience like this in the final game of the group stage. I actually won. I had a goal difference of minus seven and only five points on the board. But because of you, Tony Jameson... I had a chance of getting through. All you had to do was win your game. Mine had finished very, very quickly. And I sat there and I watched the last 20 minutes of your match like a manager on the pitch at the end of the season, like calling over to a fan with a transistor radio. Yeah. What's going on at Ewood Park? And yeah. by God, you came through. Oh, it was. It absolutely was radios in the stands, wasn't it? Because I try to do a bit of maths going into it, going, right, OK, if if Ian loses, I think I think the permutation was if Ian, if you lost by three and I won by five then I would go through potentially but then I was like well maybe head-to-heads are gonna knock me out so I thought, right we've just got to put a show on for the final match and bless Malteser Falcon he could have gone through and, and yourself could have gone through we ended up winning 4-2 and there was a point when we were 3-1 up I think and then Malteser pulled about a 3-2 and then I could sort of see your messages in the chat being like not like this not like this not like this <laughs> and then we went down we burst down the wing Gianluigi Lentini and Stuart Ripley played a little one-two because that's uh, a sentence that can be said in this universe Gianluigi Lentini goes to the byline cuts the ball back across the goal it bypasses Alan Shearer Beppe Signori is at the back post to tap into an empty net 4-2 at the Tor Madeira Arena, we erupt and Mr. Ian McIntosh erupts as well. He's running, doing the, the Jose Mourinho running down the touchline uh, to the fans and that sent you through to the knockouts. Yeah, where I got quickly spanked in the quarterfinals and Diego Maradona <laughs> offered up a 5.9 as Oof. a complete forward. I've, I've, uh, honestly, I was... I was genuinely furious by that point. Real life angry with Diego Maradona, but not with the experience because it was absolutely brilliant. What next for this 
PvP Roadshow. Yeah, so we do once a month. It's usually the uh, the second weekend of the month. So do follow the uh, the FM Playoffs over on Twitter and of course on Twitch as well. So it's just at FM Playoffs. If you're a creator wanting to get involved, obviously send uh, send some correspondence and we can obviously add you to the list. But yeah, it seems to be a scene that's growing. So hopefully we'll do more. Whether it'll be 92, 93 again, we're not sure. But yeah, it's certainly good fun. And who knows, one day, one day we'll, we'll, we'll play again, Ian, and it'll be in that glorious final and it'll be a 1-0 scuff-a-thon. I look forward to it. I really do. And uh, definitely check these out there. They're all on, on Twitch. Very easy to, to find people. RDF Tactics is on there. Tony's on there. Even I'm on there very, very slowly and tentatively, like an old man dipping a toe into a cold lake. And they're really good fun. The, the people without any exception the people involved in this were just really lovely there was no nastiness I, I know like sometimes you can see stuff on the internet people playing call of duty and yelling out trumpian slogans and things it, there was no nastiness at all it's just a group of really lovely people just playing football manager um so definitely definitely check it out tony where can we find more from you as the world begins to open up again are we going to see you on tour again soon well there is there is a there is a little rumor about that yeah yeah we might be doing a doing a 10 year anniversary anniversary of Football Manager Ruin My Life, so um, keep your eyes peeled on tonyjameson.co.uk for that. It's uh, at Tony Jameson on Twitter and it's Tony Jameson FM over on Twitch. Outstanding. Keep us posted on that and uh, we'll see you again very soon. Much appreciated. Welcome back to the Football Manager Confessional. It's a tough game. It's a tough game, Football Manager, and sometimes in our pursuit of greatness, we are driven to bend the rules, bend what's acceptable, bend our own ideas of morality in search of success and perhaps just out of fear of failure. We've all done things that we regret and so this feature exists to give you a chance to unburden yourselves to Father Stephen and we decide whether or not you should feel guilty I mean we have had people who've been they felt very guilty about things that weren't actually that bad we've also had people who I think on some level are inherently evil and should never be trusted we'll have a listen we'll decide a penance Uh, Father Stephen hello hello Ian my son Thank you again for joining us. The list of sinners continues to grow. We actually now have a short list of these now. They're coming in thick and fast. And this one comes in. I'm going to leave it anonymous. I'm going to leave it anonymous because it's, 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 a, it's a heavy one. Dear Ian and Father Stephen, I'm so glad you're offering absolution because this has weighed heavy on me. In my Aston Villa save, I'm doing really, really well. Seventh in the first season, then getting into the top four. It's 2032 now and Villa are the dominant team in England. But this success carries an asterisk. Something deep within my soul is holding back the enjoyment. He wants to take you back now to 2027-2028. Good season. Second in the league behind Man City, obviously, but a Champions League final against Arsenal. And and the match went pretty much the same way as most games against Arsenal. He says um, we were swept aside by their relentless pressing, quick passing and energetic movement. And the game ended with an emphatic 3-0 victory for the Gunners. Stood no chance. Our friend here progresses for another week. And then the classic modern FM problem occurred. He completely forgot he promised to offer 
one of his most important players, a new contract, and that had led to a row, transfer requests, the destruction of morale. It was an entirely stupid administrative mistake from me, he says, and one which I firmly believe that if it was real life, my PA or just a post-it note on my desk would have helped avoid it. So without a second thought, I reloaded my save just to get that contract out of the way. Well, you can imagine what happened next. The game hadn't been saved after the final, and so it reloaded up the day before the final. Now, our correspondent says, I readily admit... I do do this in, uh, like, ordinarily save scumming, but only for administrative mistakes, only for things like that, he says. I said to myself that I'll play the game again, and if I won, I would then play it a third time, and the winner of that game would be the true winner. That, that's fair, right? I'm not sure, but let's go with it. Mm. So as the game on the whole was tight, we took the lead, they equalised, the clock was ticking down, and with 92 minutes played, everyone was preparing for extra time. Everyone. That is, except for our big statement signing, Gio Reyna, who picked up the ball 10 yards inside our own half before going on the most incredible, most amazing run, absolutely maradonering it past the Arsenal midfield and defence before taking it around the keeper and slotting it home. Last kick of the game, probably the best goal in Champions League history. It just felt wrong to wipe a goal like that from history. Football is art, it's poetry, it's sweet music. That goal was a f***ing renaissance. So I saved, and I advanced the game. And since then, we have won the Premier League on three consecutive occasions. The FA Cup four times, the League Cup five times in a row, and even the Champions League one more time. Every win since then. Please, please offer me absolution so I can begin to enjoy my victories. Father Stephen, what do you think? Well, well, Ian, this is... It's heavy. This is the gravest, I might even say a cardinal sin, we have had in the confessional so far. The first mention of, of saves coming and our confessant themselves knows the gravity of their sin by the, the guilt that's been eating away at them. And it is obviously positive that they have brought forward their repentance. That said, this does require a punishment. I think that it's mitigated slightly by the fact that he was already doing very, very well. He had Aston Villa in a Champions League mm. final. So this isn't like using the editor to change all your players to 200 current ability. But it is mm. bad. It is bad. I think that if we're insisting on penance, that some kind of debilitating factor should be added. What do you think? I agree. The um, the sin here is as much as anything is not taking the, the the difficult times that come both in football manager and in life and trying to reset time really. So I think to really learn the lesson from his or her sin, there must be a punishment which cannot be erased. I think that a suitable punishment would be he has to, for the next full season, set his goalkeeper as his primary penalty taker. Mm. And I think that would be just enough drag on his team. Probably going to cost him a few points. It might cost him a place in a cup. And I reckon a season with your goalkeeper as penalty taker. And then I think the balance is restored and you can just get back to enjoying it. I think that is a fair punishment. I think that's fair. Mystery correspondent whose identity I have preserved because this was heinous stuff. Get back in contact with us when you've done a full season and let us know how that goes. And um, hopefully... Father Stephen has given you a pathway to uh, to absolution. 
If you want to get involved with this, if there's something weighing you down, something terrible you've done, get in touch. It is iMacintosh at theathletic.com. And that is also the address for letters. You can write to us about anything. Any questions you've got that we can take to Sports Interactive, any observations you've got about the game. We get loads and loads of letters, and I should start apologising more frequently for the fact that we we just can't fit them all in. We've got a selection here. Producer Steve, welcome to the show. Hello. Hello, Ian. How are you? Very well, very well. Who have we got first of all? First up is Steve Endersby. Thanks for writing in, Steve. Steve says, like you, Ian, I've played every iteration of FM, including all the early ones. And lately, the game has been making me feel old, which I think you might be able to share sentiments with there. Oh, yes. So Steve says, for many years when setting up my manager profile, I'd make them considerably older than myself to make it sort of realistic because obviously in the decades gone by you can't really have a 14 year old manager and you lose a little bit of the sort of balance between realism and escapism within the game or even 22 or even 25 or even as far as you know as Steve says 30 but having just turned 40 in real life he's starting to wonder if he actually needs to knock some years off his manager profile which is a moment of realization how do you feel about that? Yeah, see, this is, it was never an issue to go the other way because they didn't start adding ages until about 2006, 2007, when I was already 29, which is a little younger than, than your average manager. But it's not unheard of to have someone in their in their 20s. I think Chris Casper got the Barry job at about 29. And uh, there's that chap in Germany whose name I can never remember. Nagelsmann. Nagelsmann yeah. yeah. um, was very young. So it was always all right. But yeah, the problem is, When you start at 44, and bear in mind, when you're 44, you don't feel 44. You always take off about 15 years to get what age you actually feel. And if you play for like seven or eight seasons and you're drifting into your 50s, you start to get, you know, very mortal feelings. Um, (laughs) if, if, If that has happened to you, then let me lend you some consolation. I was showing my dad Crusader Kings 3 a few months ago and if you probably played it you've almost certainly heard me talking about it it's essentially a sort of medieval role-playing stroke strategy game and you can insert yourself into the game you can start as the king and then you find yourself a wife and you have heirs and you carry on for hundreds of years every time your character dies you become the heir it's a lovely game mechanic so I set my dad up as king and of course <laughs> within about three years of game time which can be ten minutes if you've got it on the right speed he's dead and we're sat there in his study oh my God. being really, really awkward. <laughs> so I'm I'm so sorry. It's like could could you could you make me younger next time? <laughs> and that that raises a whole load of, of, of questions. So mm. yeah, Steve, what I'm trying to say is you're not the only one. This game hits on many, many levels. Hey, who else is in there? I believe we've got Matthew Atkinson with a letter for you to read out, Ian. Yeah, Matthew gets in touch. Now, uh, we actually had a few messages about the chat with RDF Tactics last week and talking about the central midfielder on attack and whether or not he should be next to an inside forward or a winger. So Matthew Atkinson writes, he says, says, TLDR, take a leaf from Lord Nelson and use your CM on attack to penetrate the line rather than to overwhelm a single point. Stick with it. I was particularly intrigued by your chat with RDF Tactics and the virtues of the CM on attack. This is a role, along with inside forward and winger, that I utilise, 
but I use them a bit differently. I wanted to provide an alternative viewpoint. Now, given that tactical chat is a massive turn-off to many, especially proper football men, I thought I'd try and sex it up a bit with a little role-play. <laughs> All right. Imagine, if you will, your Admiral Lord Nelson standing on the deck of HMS Victory. Before you are four ships of the line in their battle formation. As a Renaissance man, I'm sure you know that historically, naval battles took place in parallel formation either side trying to overwhelm the opposing line with weight of shot or weight of numbers. This is a man who's read his mahan. And in the event that things began to, to go poorly for them, the struggling side would make a run for it. In my view, this is analogous to what you and RDF discussed. Now, if you're the defender by reinforcing your line, e.g. by having a defensive winger or a third centre-back, well, this tactic can be mitigated. Even an inferior team can overweigh the numbers and, uh, and block out all the advantages. Nelson, employing unorthodox tactics, sought to change the game. His idea was to penetrate the line, break its cohesion and command structure by attacking the opposing naval force in a column, almost spearing the line, if you will. Now, in football terms, I see this as disrupting the imaginary line of rope that connects a back four or five by opening up gaps for a galloping central midfielder to run through. So my central midfielder on attack is on the side of the supporting winger. Why? Well, as you mentioned, the idea of the winger is to stretch the defence, and more specifically to pull the fullback away from their centre-back, opening up a channel. However, at least as I see it, your runner is likely a wing-back or a box-to-box -box midfielder. Now that's fine, but they're coming from a deeper position. They're going to take longer to get there. In my Nelson methodology, the central midfielder is much closer to that gap and much more ready to gallop into it, running onto a layoff from either my centre forward or my winger or from a through ball from one of the central midfielders. So I hope you're all following that. We're going to give that a go on the Newcastle save, probably with the under-23s, and see if we've got more luck of creating the overload. At the moment, I have an inside forward on attack, that's usually Sam Maximan, and he looks to get beyond the line, and he's supported by the central midfielder attack. So we're going to switch it around so the central midfielder on attack is with the inverted winger and see if we can create a little bit of space there. So thank you for such a beautifully written email, Matthew Atkinson. He says, In sum, stand upon your quarterdeck, wear your tricorn, and unlock your inner Nelson. England expects every man to do his duty. In this case, that duty being a central midfielder on attack. Um, that that was quite a letter. I was impressed with that. That was a um, a sort of full sensory experience. That wasn't it. You know, <laughs> it really was. I hope I hope you got it. I think if we could call on our friends from Tifo to make a video <laughs> to explain that, I think, I think we we might have to. What are you like with stuff like that? When it comes to people really going in depth on tactics, I always struggle a bit. I, I think I've revert back to my um, my proper football man um, out, out of fear. I sort of, I like, one of the many reasons that I love this game and football in general is that it, the sort of tiniest tweaks do upset the sort of balance across your 11 players. And that that's your side and the opposition side. So if you've got a fundamental, I if I'm honest with you, I'm a possession-based, that's my philosophy and I don't really like deviating from that. But within that fundamental philosophy, there are lots of little ways of dealing with those sort of problems. And that centre midfield attack running line is a good example of what I, what I think is really interesting in terms of those, here are your fundamental tactics, but how do you get those sort of wins in different moments? Yeah, well, it's got to be worth a go. And, and this is why I, I manage the under-23s, but also don't let them get involved in any under-23 competitions. I want them there just for friendlies so I can try stuff out with senior players. 
Um, whoever's idea it was to reduce or limit the number of senior players that can play for the under-23 side. I'm furious at you. I'm <laughs> furious. Uh, we've got time for one more, and it's a familiar face. It is. We've got a Dan Tacon Pentagon Challenge update. Just as a quick update for listeners who might not have heard that episode or forgotten what the Pentagon Challenge is, Ian, do you want to give us a quick pressy? Yeah, it's completely insane. If it's not difficult enough just to achieve your main objectives with your team, people who play the Pentagon Challenge are people who go out and try and win the European Cup, uh, the Champions League in Europe, the uh, Copa Libertadores, which always sounds better in its original Essex in South America, and so on and so <laughs> forth, every big regional competition by basically just managing all around the world. I don't know where they get the time or indeed the ability, but Dan has been cracking away at this for several months now. Exactly. So he says, um, hi, Ian. It's been a while since I updated you after winning the Asian Champions League with Sue One Blue Wings in my first half season to chalk up the third of the five Champions Leagues from around the world. So he's more there than he's not there, if that makes sense. I took down three attempts, but he's finally made it to four out of five. So there we go. One more left to go. And this fourth one was with Sao Paulo in Brazil. So he was beaten finalists once before in a disastrous first knockout round elimination. But got over that. Finally won it with Sao Paulo. He's now in England. He's now in Europe. So the final one of the four, of the five, sorry, is the Champions League or the European Cup in old money. Dan has started off with a wall side that had actually competed in the Champions League that season but fails to qualify for the campaign that he was going to manage. That first season with Dan went well and was obviously helped by only having the Premier League and domestic cups to focus on. It went to the final day with three teams mathematically capable of winning the title. Unfortunately, it went to Arsenal. But Dan had taken Wolves to third and a return to the Champions League. That Champions League campaign, so Dan's second season with Wolves, went very well beat Zebre from Italy, 7-0 at home, smashing in 32 goals in those six matches of the group stages. That's a lot. Dan is now currently awaiting the second leg of his first knockout round match with Roma. And Wolves are 2-0 up after the away leg. Obviously, with no more away goals, that matters less. But he's in a good place to progress to the next knockout round. He says, hopefully my next email to you will be when I've completed the challenge and Wolves have their first ever Champions League title. So once that's done, I'm thinking I may fight my way to the top of the Hall of Fame. I'm currently in eighth position with Klopp firmly in my sights. And finish off my painting challenge with another book to document my unlikely successes. So this is probably going to be our penultimate email from Dan on his Pentagon Challenge. So he says, thanks for being interested, as he really appreciates having a group of like-minded individuals to tell all to. Well, Dan, thank you very much. And he's nearly there. Absolutely extraordinary. A uh, level of dedication that I just cannot match. Um, but but, <laughs> but well done. If, if you're also doing Pentagon challenges, let us know how it's going. And let us know if you're doing anything you know particularly weird, like one of those ones where you load up nine lower levels of English non-league football and try and work your way up to the top. Um, whatever you do, because it's a funny stage for the game now, isn't it? You were, um, we're into the sort of second half of the lifespan, so everyone's looking for ways to uh, change things up and, uh, and make it more exciting so let us know what you're doing as the game enters its second half and you can do that by emailing us at imackintosh at theathletic.com or find me on twitter ian underscore games and occasionally i'll be doing twitch streams on ian mackintosh's old 
And that was the Football Manager Show, sponsored by LiveScore. Your guests today were Russell Hammett from Sports Interactive, Tony Jameson, who you can find at TonyJameson.com or at Tony Jameson on Twitter. Your producer was Steve Hankey, and I am legendary 70s pop star Susie Quattro. The Athletic.